Good morning, church. My name is Derek, and I'm one of the pastors here at Third. Last week, we began a new series for the summer called Among American Gods. And the point of this series is to examine the Ten Commandments and how they confront the idols of our American life. We looked at Exodus 19 last week, and we saw that God's answer to a world of disordered worship was a people and a life. His covenant people living his covenant life in the world. And we unpacked what some of the contours of that covenant life looked like. This week, we turn our attention to Exodus chapter 20. And we begin our examination of the Ten Commandments proper. One of my favorite authors is a theologian named Hans Urs von Balthasar. That's a mouthful. Isn't that a glorious name? Uh, I, tried to, uh, I tried to work it into one of our son's names, and my wife had nothing to do with it. She's like, it's not going to happen. Give up, Mondu. Uh, von Balthasar has this great quote. He was, a, he was a Catholic contemporary of Karl Barth. He says this, Lovers are the ones who know most about God, and theologians must listen to them. Lovers are the ones who know the most about God, and theologians must listen to them. I think von Balthasar had his anthropology right. Uh, And the first commandment would agree. Because at the center of the first commandment is the question, what is the nature and the aim of human love? What is the purpose and the aim of our desire? Now, throughout the centuries, there have been a lot of ways that people have tried to categorize or understand what is the primary thing that drives us as humans or defines us as human beings. Here are a few. In 1637, Rene Descartes wrote, I think, therefore I am. And he put forth into the world the idea that humans primarily are rational beings. Another is, I believe, therefore I am. A lot of the last century was spent describing human beings primarily by our worldview or our belief systems. Sherry Turkle, who is a professor at MIT, believes that there is a new way of being human that's emerging, and it's emerging at the intersection of our relationship with technology, and she says it is, it is this, I share, therefore I am. But most compelling and most biblical is the view that we are lovers at our core. I love, therefore I am. We are creatures of desire. And it's because we're made in God's image and we're these embodied creatures that our desires drive us. I love, therefore I am. Corporate America has uh, known this for a long time, has thrived off of this most basic human truth. $206 billion spent last year alone on media advertising in the United States. Staggering. Advertising can be understood this way. It's the attempt to reorder human desire in such a way that you love and worship and most importantly purchase a certain product or thing. In fact, the line is getting so blurred between advertisement and worship, it amazes me. Uh, Why don't you take the next minute and a half and watch an example of this with me. Today I will never forget. Today I made a promise. 
and our lives really began. Because of her, the most beautiful things started to grow. Success took on a whole new meaning. And the simple moments began to mean the most. Now I can't imagine my life without her. So much of what I take for granted simply wouldn't exist. The thousand tiny pieces that compose our life gravitate around her. She is the force that holds us all together and keeps our world in motion. She is my everything, the center of my universe from Forevermark. <laughs> that's, that's good, Chris. That is not a Saturday Night Live skit, okay? That is a real advertisement. It was going good there for a while until it like veered off into Colossians territory, right? Um, life began when I met her. She is the force that holds everything together. She keeps the world in motion. Women, that is some pressure to live up to. <laughs> I, I always love this video whenever I, I watch it. The great question to ask when you watch that advertisement is, where is the guy? Where is he? Like, this deadbeat dad, not even in the picture. I basically do nothing, you know. Um, my wife always loved to say, always loves to say when we watch it, she goes, uh, no one looks that good in the morning. Nobody. <laughs> this, this has made its way uh, into my marriage, this, this, this advertisement. I can be a forgetful person. And so whenever I uh, ask for something like, where are my shoes? Where are my keys? Where's my wallet? And uh, they are precisely where they're supposed to be. Uh, not where I left them, but where they're supposed to be because my wife has found them and put them where they belong. She will point to her ring and say, center of your universe. That's <laughs> uh, it's true. The Mondus get by on humor. We get by on humor. The, the advertisement, the, the ad is bad. It's bad. It's idolatrous. But the idea is good. The question behind it is a good question. What's the center of your universe? What is the center of our reality? And are we ordering our lives and our loves around that which is ultimate? That which is of most importance. And these are precisely the kinds of questions that are asked and answered in the first commandment. We're going to read this, the first of the ten words together. You can read in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. I think you can read in your bulletin with me. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God who is love, who has met us in love, who has redeemed us in love. Would you reorder our desires today by the power of your word and through the work of your spirit in us? We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. What we're going to do today is we're going to build through this idea together of of what really the first commandment is getting at. And so we're 
we're going to build it in parts. And the first element that I want us to see is this. We were created to worship what we love. You as a human were created to worship what you love. The first word of this text begins actually not with a commandment, but with a person. A declaration about who God is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery, out of Egypt. It begins with the object of human desire, God himself. And then he tells Israel, you shall have no other gods before me. And this should be a signal to us that the Ten Commandments are going to be concerned about the ordering of human desire, about the right ordering of our loves. In fact, the first four commandments focus on the verticality of love, our relationship with God himself. They speak to man's primal love, our love for God. And the following six commandments, they speak horizontally, our relationship with others, how love of God, if if it's ordered rightly, should spill out, overflow into the world as love for others. And this matters. This matters because in the ancient Near East, it was a region dominated by idol worship. It was the most common form of faith, the most common religious system at this time. And there were so many gods, it's almost hard to conceptualize. And we live in a world where it's dominated by primarily four or five major world religions. I don't think a hearer of the ancient Near East could, could conceptualize of there just being a few gods that governed everything. Idols were pervasive, they were plentiful, and they were, they were localized. They were thought to be representations of that God's presence. And so when they carved something out of stone or out of wood to represent it, they were trying to call the presence of that God near or call one of his attributes into action. In a world of pervasive idol worship, the first commandment says, you were created to love what you worship, and that love is meant for God. And the first commandment harkens back. It harkens back to the ordered love of Eden, which is the backdrop in the author of Exodus' mind. It would have been present in the minds of those who are hearing and experiencing this text as it was happening. It's a call back to Genesis chapter 1, when we loved God and were fulfilled in love with him by imaging him to the world. This is what we find in Genesis 1. It's beautiful and it's amazing. One of the remarkable things about being a human being is this. We are created for worship. The author of Genesis says it this way. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are creatures that are made by God to be like God and made for God. Of all the creatures of creation, hear this, church, of all of the creatures of creation, only you, only you as humans can reflect and refract God's very essence, his likeness, his love to the world. We are imaging creatures. This is our worship. We order our our desires and our love towards him. 
refracting and reflecting his love to the world. This, this is what shalom means in, in, the, in, in, the, in the Hebrew mind. It is, it is the right ordering of the loves of human beings that results in the flourishing of creation. And so this first commandment, no other gods before me, is a call to Israel to a return to the ordered love of Eden where image-bearing happened and we found our worth and our fulfillment in the love of God and the imaging of him and that love to the world. We were made, we were made to worship what we love. The problem is our love became disordered because of sin. We're made to worship what we love, but we rarely love the right things. Our love has been disordered by sin. There are many places in the, in the Old and New Testaments that talk about this. We're going to dive deep into one of them next week when we talk about idol making, Genesis chapter 3. But in the New Testament, perhaps one of the clearest places where this is laid out is in Colossians 3, verse 5. And we hear Paul say these words, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. What's vital to pick here, pick up here is that sin is a worship issue. It is not a behavioral issue. It's not just breaking a rule. What, what Paul's saying is that sinful behavior is itself a worship, the worship of a false god. It is idolatry. And whenever you and I, image bearers, seek to find life, significance, love, flourishing in something other than God... We become idolaters. It's not just a behavior issue. Sin is a worship issue. And this explains why sin has so much power over us. Brian Chappell, who was a president of Covenant Seminary, was, uh, was at a conference and he was preaching at it. Um, and he, he said this... Um, incredible thing during one of, one of his sermons. And um, I, I had seen him earlier at, a, at a, um, like a, a smaller preaching conference thing. And so I remember him saying this. He said this. It's, it's just stuck with me all these years. I still remember where he was sitting when he said it. He asked, Derek, why does sin have power over you? Why does sin have power over you? And his answer was this, because you love it. Because you love it. If it didn't have power over you, you would be able to dismiss it. And if you didn't love it, you'd be able to order it rightly. You, you, you are trapped in sin's power because you love it. And he's right. He's true. That's true of you. That's true of me. Sin has power over us because we love it. It's not a behavior problem. It is a worship problem. And at its core, sin is a rejection of God in his place in our life. It's a disordering of our love. It's a disordering of the aim of our love. And so we are created for worship, and sometimes that worship can lead to ruin. We are created to love what we worship, either for ruin. So if sin is idolatry, and it is, the first idol of the human heart is always the idol of self. Always. When God is rejected, he's taken off of the throne... 
The next thing that happened is the self is elevated to the place of godhood. You've heard it said, have you guys heard the saying uh, that nature abhors a vacuum? Well, well, the throne of the human heart abhors a worship vacuum. And it will fill it with itself. And think about it, if God's rejected, seriously, who is the next best person probably to run things? Obviously me, right? Like obviously, obviously it's me. Voltaire had this great quote. He said, God made man in his own image and man's been returning the favor ever since. Isn't that good? The first God of the human heart is the God of self. And the worship of self is a deeply American pastime. It might be our oldest and greatest pastime, older than baseball or hot dogs. I want to talk about three examples. Actually, before that, I came across this great article in uh, in Popular Science, and the, the title of it I just loved. Here's the title. Science confirms the obvious. Americans are selfish. Isn't that great? This is the lead, this is the lead line of, of, the, of the article. If you need an American to do something, don't mention the common good, teamwork, or caring for others. Citing the results of various studies, this article summarized this way. Trying to get Americans to think and act interdependently, it not only failed in every study that was done, it actually decreased their future motivation to do anything. Think about that. We're less motivated to do something challenging if it benefits the common good, if it benefits somebody else. The three, three examples of, the, of a particularly American version of the God of self. Um, I'm going I'm to use three examples. The first is an icon or, or a person. It's Steve Jobs. For uh, the longest time, the image of the, um, the rugged individualist was the Marlboro Man. But he died of cancer. Literally, the actor who was the Barbara man died of cancer. Uh, he died, but the idea that he represented, right? The, the, the power of self. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't need anybody else. You can do this on your own. Was, was, uh, was remained alive and has become embodied in, in new ways. One of those, I think, is Steve Jobs. Not just a romantic, not just a rugged individualist, but a romantic individualist even. Jobs was an evangelist of progress through technology, committed to the aesthetic, to um, the ruthless drivenness of success, to innovation. 20 years ago, when I was graduating college, um, uh, it was the first time I think really Apple had uh, made any kind of consumer presence kind of a push. I think they, I think they owned about 8% of the market share at that point. Like, um, and uh, I wanted to get my first uh, uh, Apple uh, computer, and my friends made fun of me. <laughs> like, this one friend did not talk to me for like six months. He was such like a PC guy. Uh, and he's like, it's stupid. Like, Apple's not going anywhere. <laughs> Company's going to be dead in like a year. Um, under, under, under Steve's uh, leadership, I mean, he turned around Pixar which uh, has fueled much of my kid's childhood. He turned, he turned around uh, Apple single-handedly. Not really, right? But that's the myth, right? That's the legend. You can single-handedly do something like that. I think I just checked uh, uh, yesterday. I, I think Apple is charted to make about a trillion dollars in revenue for the first time. A trillion. It's like around 900 billion right now. It's incredible. And Jobs didn't want to make machines. He wanted to make magic. He would say that. He wanted to recenter all of human life 
and have, have humans be at the center of it so that you have access to any information, you, any technology. You can be anywhere you want at, at any time. Now, I've read about Steve Jobs. I, I have not read as much as others. I've read a book and some articles. And from everything that I can tell, he was a jerk. <laughs> he, was, he was a pretty horrible human being uh, to work with, estranged from his daughter at the time of his death. Um, and yet, because he made these cultural products, we worship him, we, we elevate him. The rugged individualist, the romantic individualist. He died. He died of a treatable disease. Ignored the medical suggestions of his doctors and thought that he could come up and use a special kind of diet that would cure his pretty treatable pancreatic cancer. And it killed him. That's what, that's, that's what, that's what the rugged individualism can do to us that, that puts us at the center of our understanding and our life and eventually breeds in us, no matter what kind of good things that we create, um, an idolatrous, ruinous love. Are you someone over the course of your life who needs people less as you get older or more? Because it should grow. As you grow in Christ, your need for others should grow because you're reflecting more of who he is. That's the first example of, of this American. Second is not an icon or a person. It's actually an artifact. And that artifact is the selfie. We should have some selfies of mine coming up. There we go. Um, on the left, that is myself with Jeremiah, my son. And on the right, that's me with my brother, Rodney. And um, I'll be honest, in uh, preparation for this sermon, I looked at my iPhone, which I don't know if you guys know this, but on the iPhone, it will categorize a folder that says selfies. A little creepy that my phone knows when I take a selfie versus not a selfie, but we're not going to talk about that right now. I, I, I looked at how many selfies do I have. I have, uh, see, it's 292. Uh, full disclosure, most of them are my beard. Absolutely most of them are my beard. And I have never posted them to social media. I don't know why they're on my phone. And I was a little confused. Like, have I really taken that many pictures of my beard? This is uncomfortable and awkward. <laughs> We're in a remarkable age of technological advancement. It is, it is unique. There are these unique moments in human history where technology just explodes. And the internet, post-internet, is one of those. And I think we're seeing the best and the worst of social technology in the same way that I think Steve Jobs exemplifies some of the best and the worst of American idealism. I had three different people, three different people over the last two weeks have told me that either themselves or, or one of their family members uh, is, is planning as a part of their like five-year goals to become Instagram famous as a part of fueling their company or as a part of just what they want to do in terms of platform. One of them was one of my neighbors. He just launched this really amazing new magazine. I don't even know what that means. What does it mean to be Instagram famous? I have no idea what that means. But I know this, that we, we are in a dangerous time as well. Because what's at the center of the selfie and the technological revolution, particularly around social media, is this. 
for one of the first times in human, we are always and constantly constructing and editing our sense of self and the image that we project to the world so that no one is ever being themselves. We're disassociating in, in some terrifying and new ways. And part of the lure of, of this is that if, if we can edit what people get to see about us, then we can delete, right? And so we're, we're constructing reality. And we're becoming primarily people of image management and self-promotion. This, this is, is powerful. It's changing the way we even orient ourselves to the world. I remember when Remy was three years old, he came into our living room from outside. I think he'd just gotten home from uh, preschool or something. He went right up to our television, and he just started going like this. Started swiping it. That, that is some brainwashing kind of stuff right there, is it not? Like, no, that doesn't happen. And one of the things that frustrates me the most right now is whenever my kids come up with their peanut butter fingers to my laptop, they try to do the same thing. Like they're, 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 it's, it's changing the way we physically interact with the world. This, this is ordering our love, our sense of self. And it's deforming us because it puts in our grasp a sense of entitlement. It places in us this sense of entitlement that, that I can shape the world the way I want it to be. I'm the center of this universe. I can define it the way that I want to be. I can put my attention wherever I want it. I can be present to everybody at all times. And let me tell you, a sense of entitlement is a bad thing to bring into a real relationship. It might be good. It might be good for social media. It's a bad thing for a marriage. It's a bad thing for a family, for work, or for worship. That's the second example. The third is this. It's not an icon. It's not an artifact. It's a people, and it's us. We are no longer people that uh, purchase brands. We are becoming the curated brand ourselves. We're no longer primarily concerned with reflecting or refracting the image of God. We are about image creation and image management. And we are forming our own images of ourselves and others. And we're projecting them to the world and we're saying this is what is real and what is not whether it's the way that you choose what you post on Facebook to appear to be the perfect mom or perfect husband, the pictures that you take of your home. I heard this phrase a couple weeks ago, Pinterest perfect. I'd never heard that before. It's a great phrase. Yeah, yeah, your house, it, it, for that one moment, it's Pinterest perfect, right? And then your kids come along and they do something or it gets messy. I want to see a Pinterest of that, of just like ugly rooms. <laughs> like, like throw up over here, like clothes over there. You don't get many followers with that. LinkedIn is interesting. LinkedIn, we do this in LinkedIn too. I have a friends who curate very exaggerated profiles of themselves on LinkedIn. I remember this from my, my friend Adam when he was creating his first LinkedIn profile. I knew Adam very well. We lived together for four years. Uh, and um, he said that he um, had proficiency in German. And I was like, this is amazing. I didn't even know this about Adam. So I bring him into my room. And I'm like, hey, man, I just... I just you saw that you have proficiency in German. Look, let's, like, let's just talk a little German. Talk to me. And he goes, this is, this is exactly how the conversation goes. He goes, all right, all right, yeah, okay, hold on. Ich. That was the end of the conversation. That was it. That was all. He was not, uh, he, he was not proficient in German. He looks at me and goes, I should probably take that off my resume, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you probably should. You probably should. Not only does the worship of self isolate us, um, it, 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 we, we are quickly becoming the most uh, alone we've ever been. 
This is it's, it's terrifying. We worship what we love unto ruin. Either unto ruin. We worship what we love either unto ruin or unto restoration. Thankfully, the good news for us is this. That's not the end of the story, brothers and sisters. God does not leave us in a place where we are enthroned as ourselves, as gods of this world. Why does sin have power over you? Because you love it. What can break the power of sin? It has to be a greater love. It has to be a surpassing love. We worshiped our way into this mess. We worship our way out of it. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 21 says this. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things, all things have been created through him and in him. In him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. The end of the story is not supremacy of self. It is supremacy of Christ. God was pleased to have all the fullness of him dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Here is the good news. There is only one person, one person, whose love has ever been deemed acceptable and praiseworthy and pleasing unto God, and it is not yours, and it is not mine. Hallelujah. There's only one worship, one person whose worship will ever be pleasing to God, and it is Jesus's. The good news is that this is not about you. It never has been. This has always been about him. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and he is the object of our desires and our loves. We worship what we love unto ruin or unto restoration. This is what it means to be human. This is the heart of the first commandment. So to close, what I want to do is I want to take a couple of moments to give some practical Um, habits and practices that we can do that would shape the order of our heart, the aim of our heart. If we're lovers by nature, the problem is our our love gets disordered. It it can't be put in the right direction. So how do we do this? Well, Well, we are liturgical creatures as human beings. We are made for community and for habits and for embodiment and, and, and putting our desires physically through rhythms in the places that they're supposed to go. You, you are, I don't care if you like high church or low church, you are a liturgical creature. The question is just, what kind of liturgy is forming you? No liturgy is a form of liturgy. <laughs> what is ordering your love? And I want to offer just three simple things. The first is a practice of repentance. And repentance helps us with self-denial. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at sea. 
we are far too easily pleased. We, it's not that you love too much. It's that you're loving lesser things. And this practice for you is a practice of repentance. There should be in your life, weekly or monthly, a place where you are unveiled before God and someone else. And I know it is terrifying. It is scary. But it is necessary. I don't know a better way to, to decenter the self than to be who you really are, unveiled before God and someone else. The second is this. To find two touch points. Just find two touch points. And this is really about God dependence. Find two touch points of God dependence every day. One personal and one family. One just for yourself and one for your family, where you're orienting yourself around God for that moment, whether it's reading scripture together or praying or practicing a spiritual discipline together or talking about something um, that the Lord has been teaching you. That, that, that there are two points of your day that you are ordering yourself around the Lord. I would suggest, if you do not do this often, just start with reading the scriptures. They are life. They are life and power. Two touch points of your day where you're orienting yourself around God and not yourself. And these might seem really simple, like Sunday school type answers. That's okay. It's what we need. It's absolutely what we need. Because it's not about any one moment of your life. What happens when you start doing these practices for three months, six months, two years, three years? I have struggled to follow Jesus my whole adult life. The only thing that I can say consistently has ordered my love in the right place has been consistent communal spiritual disciplines like this, repentance and finding a liturgy for my day that focuses my attention on the Lord. The last is this, radical transparency. And I'm going to talk about community first because it's radical transparency is in a, a kind of community, an expression of community. And really the heart here is to build interdependence with one another. So the first helped us with self-denial. The second with God dependence. And this is with interdependence. I, I need you to know, I know that you know this, but we, we, we still live such fragmented and individualistic lives. You need to know, you need people to help you keep the first commandment. You desperately need people. And if you don't, you are laboring under an illusion and a lie and, and, and your, the first rhythm would be really good to start. A place of coming back to recognizing your need for God and others. Did you know that 75% of, um, of air traffic accidents happen the first time that a flight crew is together? This is like verified fact. They've known it for uh, over a decade. Can't do anything about it. <laughs> because they, they can't get everybody's schedules to be able to merge the right way. So, so uh, the next time I go on a flight, I'm going to ask for sure if, if this is the first time the flight crew's been together. I think it speaks to the need for a team. What they find is like there are these rhythms and practices of people knowing you and you knowing them that increase their efficiency, their safety. NASA didn't think this was true, so they went really deep in trying to prove this idea. And so this is what they did. This is how far NASA went. I love this. They simulated what would happen if you had a crew who was completely well-rested, flying together for the first time, and compared it to a crew that had already done a flight path and then had pulled an all-nighter the night before. 
but they knew each other. Compare their efficiency. And this is what they found. The, um, the, the team that was together, well-rested for the first time, always makes more errors than the sleep-deprived crew that pulled an all-nighter the night before. Isn't that insane? Who you surround yourself matters. And I'll tell you this, 100% of human beings who try to keep the first commandment on their own fail. That's not an actual statistic. I made that up. But it is very true. You need other people. And don't just surround yourself with others. When you surround yourself with others, I want to encourage you towards community that is radically transparent. Um, There's a great podcast called uh, Work Life. And I I heard about this company there called Bridgewater Associates. They are the most successful hedge fund in the world. And um, Bridgewater is known for something in particular, an office culture that is radically transparent. Everybody says what they really think to anyone all the time. It is, it is, it is a conflict avoidant person's nightmare. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Um, but here's what's really interesting. Uh, there's this great story the, the, the CEO tells. His name is Ray. And he talks about this uh, leadership talk he gave, 50 minutes or whatever. Thought he did a pretty good job. He got an email from a new employee 15 minutes after it was done. And it said, Ray, that was embarrassing. I would give you a D plus. This company deserves better. And do you know what he did? He sent it to the whole company, everybody, and asked them, okay, what did you guys think about my, uh, my, my leadership talk? And everybody responded back. And most of them were like, yeah, D plus is about right. <laughs> That's the kind of culture he's created because uh, actually doing what is right and the results that their company gets is, is more important than managing how people think about them. What's really interesting, one of the employees, I love this, and this is where I think it really, really connects with us. One of the employees, when they said, what's the real value of this? This is what she said. I work in a company that has no office politics at all. Think about that. No posturing of like, what do they think about me? How do, they, how do I think about them? You know, your work is always on full display. Your successes and your failures always on full display. And this is the gift that radical transparency can give to you and I as we seek to reorder our loves. It's not that the office politics go away, but the internal politics can disappear. I need you to hear that. I need you to know that and believe it in faith. The internal politics of your life, the shame, the endless image management, the people pleasing, it can die. It can die. This is the gift of radical transparency to us. I meet with a group of men every year. Uh, six or seven of us. We got together every year since, since uh, we graduated college. We have buried children together, which is tragic, only being 42 years old. We have rescued our marriages together. And uh, about five years ago, I had the idea, hey, why don't we have our wives send, send their thoughts about how the year's gone before we meet? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> We were not ready for radical transparency. What we discovered at that point was we were all a bunch of great liars. I'd been, been walking with these men for 10 years, lying to each other. <laughs> it has become the most radical community since then. And all it took was what? Radical, radical transparency. Look, there's nothing to fear but the truth. And the truth, I promise, will set you free. These are some, so these are some practices that can aim the direction of your love back towards God. And what, we, what we've dis- discovered here together as we've 
examine the first commandment is this, that we are created to worship what we love, either to ruin or to restoration. Let's pray. Father, my prayer for us is that we would not love the world or anything in the world or ourselves or anything in ourselves. We know that if we love anything more than you, according to 1 John, the Father is not in us. And so for everything that is of this world and of the self, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of our lives, the worship of ourselves, we know this does not come from you. The world and its fleeting and lesser desires will pass away, but whoever does your will will live forever. And so, Lord, we look forward to the day when Christ appears, and we know that we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is. My prayer, Father, is that you would reorder the desires of our heart, that you would give us the courage to believe what you say about us and to begin these rhythms of renewal that we might reorder our loves to where they were originally intended to be, your very self. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.